Hello and welcome to this, the first ever Squiggly podcast brought to you by squiggly.co.uk, the online animation magazine. I'm Steve Henderson, I'm the editor of Squiggly magazine and joining me is Ben. Hi Ben. Hello, I'm Ben Mitchell. I'm features writer and independent animation freelancer, all around animation geek. So this is a rather exciting new development for the whole Squiggly operation, I guess, uh, bringing the, the audio component to the mix. Absolutely. A little bit of the world of animation to you uh, through your ears as opposed to reading it. It's very difficult for animators to read articles and animate at the same time. So Squiggly in general, uh, as an independent venture, we're into all sorts of different areas of animation, you know, the obvious stuff and the not so obvious stuff. I guess, to be honest, with this first podcast, we're, we're going with probably the most obvious of all as far as the UK animation industry is concerned. That being Ardman and their new film, The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. We have a conversation with Peter Lord coming up. We've also got news on the animation tax breaks and obviously your thoughts and letters that you sent in to us. We'll be reading a few of those out later on. Elsewhere in the animation world, Glenn Keane leaving Disney. Some thoughts on that. We'll also be talking to Fraser McLean about his book, Setting the Scene. We were just discussing, what's the best bit about being a pirate? Oh, you were, were you? I suggested it might be the looting. Whereas I contend it's the shiny cutlasses. And I thought it was a chance to catch exotic diseases. So, Steve, you've seen the film. Uh, I have not yet, but I'm going to soon. Um, can you tell us a bit about it while keeping it relatively spoiler-free? Uh, yeah, I'll try my best. Basically, uh, without giving away the ending, the story is about the, the pirate captain uh, and his efforts to win the Pirate of the Year award. He's a pretty rubbish pirate captain, uh, played by Hugh Grant. Uh, and his adventures when he bumps into a young Charles Darwin on the Beagle and then has to uh, get noticed in the world of science and to win the heart of a rather royal lady. Aha. Uh-huh. So it's a a factual account of... I would say that it is probably the least historically accurate film I've ever seen. History buffs um, will be a little bit disappointed. I can imagine the likes of Simon Sharma pulling the hair out, seeing seeing Queen Victoria portrayed in such a way. Uh, Queen Victoria, obviously the villain of the piece, um, played uh, brilliantly by Imelda Staunton. What does it say on my royal crest, Admiral? I hate pirates. Mum. Exactly. Hate them. With their idiotic shanties and their ridiculous hats. I want them sunk, Admiral. Stop it. Smashed. Back to the sharks. Do you hear me? I hate pirates. Also, we've got uh, David Tennant as uh, Charles Darwin. Oh, he's Darwin. Yeah, so that's he... what I'm looking forward to. Apparently, Darwin gets gets treated really horribly in the film. He is a bit of a Which... comic foil. He is, yeah. <laughs> Something uh, for the creationists out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take <Yeah>. that, monkey boy. <laughs> there is a quite a few nods to um, to to creationists. Oh, don't mind, Mr. Bobo. Just an old project of mine. Project? Yeah, I had this theory. I thought that if you took a monkey. Gave him a monocle and covered up his gigantic, unsightly ass. Then he would cease to be a monkey and become more of a... A man-pansee, if you will. Bold theory. I don't like the monkey. All the pirates in the film have, are named by their attributes. So you've got the pirate captain, you've got the pirate with the scarf, you've got the pilot that's an albino, you've got the pirate that's 
that like sunset and kittens. So the suspiciously curvy or the Sus- <laughs> yep, suspiciously curvy pirates. Uh, that's played by Ashley Jensen, returning for a second Admin film. Uh, but yeah, the story basically centers around the pirate captain, who's a little bit uh, inept, shall we say? He's not the best pirate in the world. Um, he's constantly shown up by Black Bellamy. Uh, who's this sort of showboating, um, charismatic pirate who gets all the girls and Jeremy all the booty. Piven, right? Jeremy Piven, yeah, from uh, Entourage. He's, uh, he's, he's a fantastic, like, as far as playing the, the consummate horse's ass, like, <laughs> that is, 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 is really kind of uh, something he excels at. Wait a minute. Pirate of the Year? <laughs> You're into Pirate of the Year? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, Yes. Listen, did they change the rules? I mean, I always thought they gave it to the pirate with the most booty. Do they now just give it to the guy with the fattest parrot? She is not <laughs> fat. She's just big bone. She's fat. <laughs> I do know that it's, it's uh, Hugh Grant's first animated feature film, you know, doing first a, voice Does he work. do a good job? He does a fantastic job, yeah. I gotta be honest with you, I saw like the, the original, the first like promotional material for it, and I, I, was, I didn't get that it was him. Hmm. Like he, and he has this very distinctive, you know, he's he's the the epitome of British bluster and everything. Everyone, you would think that his voice would be instantly identifiable. Yeah, but actually, it, it's no, he's a good character actor. He's fantastic, and that's yeah. a real concern, I think, with with films like animated films. Um, they will just put actors in to have the name on the poster yeah and it makes sense if it's someone like a mike myers but then sometimes they'll just have like you know someone who is a big name just for the sake of having the big name and yeah you know not to burn any bridges too early but i know that there are certain studios that kind of tend to lean toward that more yeah and so it's nice to actually have a film that you know it's it strikes that exact sort of mix between like you know identifiable well-known people but then also you know uh, the people who can perform in that way because voice acting is a very, very different discipline, I think, to, to theatre acting or, or live action acting. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. When you watch this film, you're not watching Hugh Grant doing a voice of a pirate, you're watching the pirate captain. Hugh Grant is in a fantastic yeah. job of this sort of buffoon. Another another fantastic voice in that, I would say, is Russell Tovey. Russell Tovey does a fantastic job as the albino pirate. Um, oh, yeah, everyone's saying that he's like stealing it. Like he's 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 really sort of he, he's got the down. voice for it. He really has got the yeah. voice for it. But getting back to the story, uh-huh. uh, your original question, uh, basically the pirate captain uh, is sick of being uh, inept buffoon. Decides he's going to enter Pirate of the Year awards. So he decides to go out plundering uh, these ships. Things don't go to plan. You'll have all seen the trailer where he, he leaps onto these these all the, the different pirate ships. Yeah, he leaps onto the. He meets a, a geography field trip. He meets nudists. Uh, he meets. Um, I can tell you who he doesn't meet. Well, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, those following it, you can see that he doesn't meet anyone with you any know, any kind of you know a, a certain affliction that apparently is more public and has more of a voice than one might have suspected. He he meets he meets a plague ship now instead of uh, which an equally good joke thrown in, mm-hmm. and and the whole adventure is um, plenty of plenty of chases, plenty of action, plenty of drama. Uh, and plenty of puns, pun, 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 pun. All the, I mean, everywhere, everywhere you look in this film, there's a, there's a, there's a pun. Uh, you can't look on the walls in the background of the set. It's quite distracting because there's always a funny poster, and everything's funny. It's not. It, for me, it didn't get tedious at one point. Yeah, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic film. I would urge anyone to go see it. 
So, Ben, you were lucky enough to go and interview Mr. Peter Lord over at Aardman. I was indeed. That was wonderful. It's a really uh, very welcoming environment, great studio, very close to where I live, which is always a plus. Um, oh, and the main feature, which I had mentioned in the article, kind of I, I, I was a little freaked out by is just how enormous the pirate ship itself. It's so well-crafted, a giant, you know, um, and funny. Visually, it's, it's you know, uh, something that goes hand-in-hand hand with the ineptness of the characters, but it's also this incredibly sophisticated level of craftsmanship, and I think that's really what's made up and what they are now, you know, and, and for a long time, more than anything, they care about the craft. They care about the physical structures of their puppets, of their characters, uh -huh. the acting, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's... The animation is, you know, incredibly crucial and important, and of course the story, but they execute it in a way that's really, really well considered, you know, and I think that's something that, that's really given it its charm over the years. Yeah, yeah. it's something that built up over, over a while. I mean, the Ardman style, people would be quick to say is um, the Nick Park overbite, which he puts in most of his films, like Chicken Runner, which was mm -hmm. co-directed by Peter Lord. That's not the Ardman style, is it? I think it's the, the misconception of Ardman having like a visual style probably comes from just the prevailing stuff that they've done, the Creature Comforts of Wallace mm -hmm. and Gromit, um, Shaun the Sheep, they come from a lot of the same places, you know, creatively, so they have that shared aesthetic. Um, but really, sort of all throughout their history, they, they've gone to a lot of different places visually, you know, and I think um, even back to, like, the old Channel 4 films, you know, the stuff mm. that Peter Lord was doing and the stuff that Nick Park was doing was quite different. Like the stuff Barry Purvis was doing with Next, Richard Goliazowski with Ident, you know, they, they weren't similar visually, but they did have a kind of shared... And I guess now, when you look at the, the short films they're doing now, Pythagosaurus, uh, excellent, yeah. Pierce Sisters, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that was a, a, for me, I think that was a very important film for Arman visually because it was, it was just sort of a darker edge, a, a step in a very crucial direction for them. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed the, the, the Pierce Sisters. That was a fantastic film. Arman have, they've got a fantastic range and not only for animation, you've also got um, loads of different arms to Arman now. You've got... Um, admin digital, admin mm -hmm. commercials, admin you know, features, and, and they are they're getting huge now. You've got your touchscreen games, you know, all this sort of. It's a it's an exciting time for admin. It really is an exciting time. So you heard it here first, folks. Admin, they're going places. So with all that in mind, here's our interview with Peter Lord. Adapting the story for pirates yes. from a book. Yeah. Is that not really common practice for admin? No, it's much? not. No, you're right. No, it's not at all. I mean, I. I, I personally um, don't have any instinct to adapt a book into a mm -hmm. film. There are books I love, um, and I wouldn't dream of turning them into a film. I th I, the idea flashes across my mind. I think, oh, no, 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 thank you. And then there are books which could be adapted with a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. The American, big American studios tend to do this. I mean, when you think that Shrek was a sort of... a what was it, 30-page kids' storybook, when you think that Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs was a, a major picture book with not many words in it. Mm. You know. they, take, they take things which are very slight and they completely transform them. Oh, this thing that's out now, which I haven't seen, The Lorax, mm -hmm. which isn't out in the UK yet. I mean, that apparently is for a picture book with very few words and very few pages, right? Mm. So adapting those things is kind of massive because you, you, you have to flesh them out so much. And frankly, unappealing doesn't interest me at all. I don't. Mm. I ne If I ever look at children's picture books, which sometimes I do, it never occurs to me to turn them into a movie. Mm. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. Having said all, all that, so I have done it with the pirates. And maybe, if I'm honest, that 
one detail of that is because the pirates books are not very well known. They have a, you know, they have a very enthusiastic cult following, but they're not very well known. Uh, I'd never, never heard them before. So maybe that was sort of liberating. I didn't feel an obligation to an existing set of readers. Mm-hmm. You know. So adapting as such very seldom occurs to us. Every, you know, every, if you looked around the studio building now, there'd be somebody looking at a book to adapt it. But we don't, that doesn't happen very often, you know. But the pirate book was so, to me, so attractive, so dramatically attractive. It's hard now quite to, um, you know, remember that the, the, the impact it made, but it made a huge impact on me at the time because it was so funny. Just that, that was why I liked it. You know, picked it up, read it, thought, my God, this is brilliant. I thought, I've never read anything so funny, not for, not for, you know, not for a very long time. And I read anything that made me laugh out loud so much, so often. There's a copy of it somewhere. But God knows where. <laughs> I don't know where it is. <laughs> somewhere. Somewhere in the studio. There's a copy, my first copy, uh-huh. where I just underlined funny bits. Really funny. Not just fairly funny, but actual, you know, like laugh big, out big out smile on laugh out yeah. loud. And, and the book is covered in underlines. There are so many good ideas in it. And, and in that case, in the case of the pirates, it was the world I wanted to adapt rather than the story, if that makes any sense. I mean, we, we have adapted the story. A lot, mm. um, but I just, want, I just wanted to put that world on the screen. I wanted, and I wanted to try and capture that amazing sense of humour that Gideon has. Mm. Is uh, the books are a series? I think at this point, or a growing series? Yes, it's still four or five. Yeah. Is there a sort of plan to carry on adapting subsequent books, or is that all dependent on how the films are? Well, I mean, wh- whether there's a sequel or not is um, the defining. Mm thing will be the box office success of it in the worldwide box office. So, if it's enough of a success to flick the switch, then we will be ready to do a sequel because I like the idea very much. And the idea we're working on for the sequel is not one of his other books. It's, it's an original thing that Gideon came up with. Because okay. Gideon's a very clever guy. Mm. So you had a good relationship with him overall during the adaptation? Yes, absolutely. Because you, you, know you know you wrote the screenplay. Yeah, yeah, I'd read that. Yes, yeah. So, yes. so yes, he wrote the screenplay. Almost all, almost everything's changed from the book, really. Um, and was Gideon happy? Yes, Gideon was absolutely part of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So he's been on it the whole way through, like me. You know, you could say we were the first, we were the first two on it. Um, so that's been great. It's been very, very involved because you know, in feature films, animated, animated features, yeah, for various reasons. You keep writing. Uh, he stopped now because the film's finished. But he, he he kept going for a long time, and initially, some of those rewrites are really structural. You 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 are rewriting the story. You're introducing new characters. You're changing people's motives and stuff. Big big changes. Then the next thing is you find you've written far too much, so you have to trim it down to make it um, play in that within ninety minutes. There's a great tendency to over-elaborate things in script form. And then finally, Gideon, the writer, ends up doing line-by-line adjustments and tweaks to to make it perfect, perhaps before you go into the recording studio. The film, from all the promotional material I've seen and and trailers and whatnot, um, the quality, I think, that's really bound all the Ardman features together in the shorts and, and it's something that I think is shared with, with studios like Pixar is a real consistent charm 
like every right. character, yeah. the villains and the heroes are all sort of inherently likable. Yes. Sort of the the Salma Hayek character or mm. the the um, uh, Jeremy Piven yes. character is just as you're rooting for them almost just as much as the right. Hugh Grant as far as the the sense of personality you get. Yeah. Um, and I mean, is there any sort of element or, or characters or, or scenarios within the film that you feel a particular an affinity with or fondness for? I think perhaps, although I like everything, in, although I do like all the characters and, and care for them, and try to present them with some sort of sympathy. I think probably, I mean, the part of Captain is, feels, I feel very, very close to the pirate captain, of course. And then the other one, the other one I would like is Charles Darwin, because he's so mm. hapless. You know, he has such a hard time in the story. He's so, um, on the back foot, and, mm. and uh, everything is always a, 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 he's never ahead of the game. Mm. Or he's very, 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 very briefly. For a very short moment, he's ahead of the game. Otherwise, he's always on the back foot, tagging along behind this bloke. Taken on behind the pirate captain, who's so much more stupid than he is. Mm. Which I think, that's, I think that's what I find amusing. You know, it goes through se- several passages, and, and initially, the captain is such a fool that he completely loves Darwin at first and thinks what a splendid fellow he is because because he's kind of new. Actually, you know, he, mm. the captain is is beguiled and attracted by a new thing, a new face. Uh, so he falls for Darwin completely, um, and then when Darwin thinks he's getting what he wants. The captain sort of cools a little bit, but he thinks he thinks he's a wiser, a man of the world. He thinks that a pirate is way better than a scientist, which of course they fundamentally are. Mm. Uh, so he feels very superior, and that's that's a very funny situation. And it keeps on it keeps on evolving. So I love I love that relationship. Yeah, was the dynamic between the characters informed much by the the cast themselves? Like, were they given any sort of free reign to sort of bounce off each other, or was everything quite? Rigid. It's fairly rigid, I have to say, in mm. animation. The most notable uh, exception is probably um, Jeremy Piven as Black Bellamy, because he, we only recorded him once, did we? Yeah, once in, in uh, LA, one, one session. It's a relatively small part, you know, and, um, and he really got into it in the most amusing fashion, and he was kind of improving more than the others, and um, we didn't have Hugh Grant with us at the time. The, the actors don't often meet, seldom, uh, sadly. And so when we went to LA, we took with us um, a guy from Britain, Ben Whitehead. And Ben attended every recording session because he, and he was the reading artist. So normally, because you haven't got the other parts there, you've got just Hugh Grant on his own, and Ben reads all the other parts, you see. And that was so useful. Ben was terrific. Unsung hero is Ben Whitehead. Mm. He, he, he helped me so much in raising like the emotional temperature, uh, you know, or raising the tempo or slowing it down if I wanted, because you know, that was very, very helpful. So Ben came with us to meet Jeremy Piven, and Ben was playing the pirate captain, and Jeremy Piven was Black Bellamy, obviously, and, and Jeremy really kind of sort of needled him like, like I mean, jokey, mm-hmm. but he really got into it. He really got into mocking and teasing uh, ben in the room, comically, and it was great. You know that. So he was—he really just got the part, got the idea, and went with it. And and lots of his lines, the detail of how he of how he phrased a line would be his own improv. Seems mm-hmm. great. 
You mentioned that uh, I think it was a festival of ideas a couple of months ago um, when you were showing some of the, yeah. the, the <clears throat> behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Um, that an, a pirates themed concept had been pitched a few years back. Yes, and wasn't really considered because the studio didn't really feel it was something people would want to go yes, and see. Yes, that's funny. That was the studio's, the studio's response, and I literally can't remember which studio it was, which is. <laughs> Quite amusing, I have to say. That actually shows we've been we've been around the block a few times. We've t- we've talked lots of studios, but you know one of the one of the majors in America when we pitched a pirate idea fourteen fifteen years ago, the reaction was, oh, no, that's not going to work, is it? Because you see, pirates were murdering brigands, and you're not going to make a family movie out of murdering brigands. That was mm-hmm. that was basically what they take, you know. Um, Interesting, interesting take, you know, uh, and actually pretty stupid at the time, you know, because, as proved by the Pirates of the Caribbean, because, um, you know, now it's considered virtually a truism. Wherever I go, people say, oh, yes, kids love pirates, don't they? Like, as if that was, a, you know, as if, well, it's almost, almost proverbial that kids like pirates, so, um, which they, they kind of always do. It is a perennial favourite. Absolutely, actually, no part of why we made the film, but yes, but that is incidentally true. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a bit of comic murder in it, you know, and a bit of comic um, grog drinking and general badness. Mm-hmm. And if and if you listened to the moral majority in America, you would end up with the most bland films imaginable that, that had nothing provocative or difficult in them at all. Mm-hmm. Which happily, we're not in that. Category and with Arthur Christmas, they thought they certainly thought that was absolutely middle road mainstream. So they they were quite um, keen not to have anything too challenging in the material of it, you know. But with the pirates, they uh, were happy to go for more like the Shrek audience. So you're allowed to be a bit more mischievous, you know. You're allowed to be a bit a bit, a bit more adult, basically, you know, which is good. You were saying about like half a Christmas, and, yeah. and I uh, was very enamoured of that film. Mm. I was almost not to, to I'll choose my words carefully. I was sort of surprised because I didn't figure I would be its demographic. Well, no, 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 no. Uh, but it, it again had that that real strength to it, a real sort of mm. warmth and, and had very good writing in it. Uh, yeah, extremely well. It was very, very, it was very intelligent, extremely well made film. Mm. And as a CG feature, do you feel that it was a, a step forward from the last feature? Oh, well, it certainly was. Yes, it was. I mean, the 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 quality of the CG, the quality of the lighting, and mm-hmm. the camera work was amazing in that. And uh, also, a flashed away was by any sense a bit of a hybrid because it started out as a stop frame film. You know, we started developing right. as a stop frame film, and then and then for various um, commercial necessity, we swapped. We jumped horses midstream. Uh, that, which is inevitably slightly awkward. So Arthur Christmas had the advantage of starting out from a much purer place, you know, i.e. Mm-hmm. a blank sheet, blank canvas, you know, yeah. which, is, which is a good place to start. I also quite liked that it, it visually didn't sort of scream Ardman, which isn't to say that's a bad thing no, necessarily, no. but like it, it, it made a sort of stylistic choice yeah. that was its own thing. Yes, it did, that's right. Um, yeah. and, and, and really sort of carried itself. Yes, because I've always that. thought that, for me, Ardman has never been a design thing at all. You know, it's... it's a, what. That if we have a style, our style, it's a style of spirit mm-hmm. rather than anything else. Not, mm-hmm. not, not, of, not of look, you know, um, not even of comedy. You know, the, the comedy of Arthur Christmas is very different to the comedy of 
Monsters and Comets are both different to the comedy of the pirates, I think. But although you know they, they're each you know British, mm-hmm. that that we do have in common, um, and that's as it should be to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that you'd probably say of Pixar as well, I think. You know that's what that's what unites their films. They do very different films in every way, except you kind of know you know the spirit behind them, which is yeah. which in their case is is fantastic American, in our case is fantastic British. Yeah. Um, especially sort of into the the way the stop motion processes have evolved, mm. and um, stuff like the three D printers and, and yeah. the the way things are, are sculpted now is yeah. is it all kind of like is it silicone based or a type of rubber or do you still use lots of clay? And there isn't much plastic. There's not much plastic. In there. There's some uh-huh. for old times' sake, uh, but the puppets are the puppets are largely silicon and latex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. Um, but then again, the, well, they were in um, Chicken Run too. You know, yeah. they, were, they were largely, um, largely latex and silicon. Then I think plastic is wonderful material, glorious material which we love. But usually, in its pure form, uh, brings all kinds of amazing um, design issues with it. Yeah. Like you can't have anyone with a stripy shirt for a start. You know, you, you know, you can't, <laughs> if they made plastic, you can't do stripy shirts. You can't do you can't do pattern. You know. And I always thought from the very early on. If there's one thing I assumed about pirates, it was that they had fancy clothes. You know, I didn't think they said, "Arr." I didn't think they came from West Country, uh, but I did think they had fancy clothes because I thought that was, uh, everyone knows pirates like fancy clothes. And as soon as you said that, as soon as you talked in terms of buckles and gold braid and sword belts and um, sea boots and stuff like that, I knew they weren't going to be made out of plasticine. Mm. That's for sure. But of course, they were. They're all sculpted in plastic in the first place. The, right. the, we go from we, we go from drawing on paper, pencil on paper, to sculpting in plasticine, and then when we're happy with that, then we cast them in in latex and silicon. So. Are there any other like modern processes or, or digital processes that you feel are a particular boon to the filmmaking? I must say the, the whole digital thing. I loved on this film. It was the first time I you know, hadn't directed for a long time, so it was it was entirely digital. With a good team, it was very liberating for me, which is great because I've got lots of my plates, you know, I've got my mind's completely rammed with stuff. It's very hard work and very full on work. But the digital pipeline, let's use that strange word, was so strong and, and well worked out and, and helpful to me. It was great. So, for example, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a shot, there are, there are some CG characters in there behind, in the backgrounds, you mm-hmm. know. And um, and you, know, you could take you could take a scene with all the all the foreground was stop motion, and you I would as a director I'd sign off the action because I'd seen it stop motion for the foreground, and then six months later I'd see it again suddenly with the background populated with the CG characters. It was, I loved it, you know. I thought it was amazing because it was so they look absolutely right, they move very well, and I just thought it enhanced. The stop motion, you know. Mm. I have no desire. I have no desire to take those background characters and bring them up into the foreground. That would be. You right. know, I don't want to go there. That's not. That's not what we do. But fetching out the background looks so natural and so unobtrusive. Mm. Then, you know, but they're they're well designed. Very well. Very well. I must say, in the same style as the foreground, and just just gently retreat like like extras would should mm-hmm. should in the film. And I loved that, you know, and I thought, oh, wow, how you seen it? I thought, wow, we, we could have done the whole thing in front of a huge crowd. In fact, I now see, you know, we were very shy about 
the background crowd because mm -hmm. it's a big deal. But seeing how well it worked, well, I thought we could do more of that. Yeah. And the 3D element for mm -hmm. the films recently, do you think that that's going to keep going for a while? or? Well, you know, there are problems with, with 3D films, which we all know. And there are great things about 3D films. Um, whether it continues is out of my hands. I, I'm very happy to have had a go at it, you know, uh, as a director. As a director, I was very happy to have a go because it seems intriguing because it is another dimension. I mean, obviously we think in 3D the whole time because we make, because our films are literally in 3D. So, you know, so we always think in terms of space and depth. It's very important to us. And we try to put it on the screen in 2D. You know, we try to make our 2D films look as if they have a lot of depth to yeah. it. So doing it in, in 3D was, what can you say, extend, extending the world, I suppose, was just was just it. For me, it's funny, because obviously I know the film rather too well. Um, and now I know it too well, I don't have to watch the action at all, because I know every frame. Yeah. And so I can indulge myself by looking around the set, which the audience aren't meant to be doing, mm -hmm. you know. But it's very nice to do it, and the sets do look great in 3D, in, especially when you're in the captain's cabin. You're in this it's a rather fragile, creaking wooden box, and you can see the sea at one end, and you can see the deck at the other end. And, and in the theatre, you're surrounded by the mm. creaking of the timbers, and the uh, and the lanterns are swinging from the roof. And and it's a small set and full of detail. And so, as a viewer in 3D, it is rather wonderful to to, to just glance around it. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but you haven't got much time for this. <laughs> That's why people have to go watch it twice. Well, yeah. I've been in general, it has a pretty strong reputation as far as nurturing new talent mm. and up-and-comers. Mm. Are there any like particular names that come to mind as far as people to sort of look out for, people who have like a really strong future, Crikey. either within Armin or outside of it? Yeah, well, uh, funny enough, um, the writer, Gideon Defoe, I mean, mm. he's, he's the guy of all who's career might be most transformed by this mm. because he made these books he's, very, he's a very funny fellow <laughs> when he talks about his books he's always rather, he's rather dismissive of them you know because right. they're, they're, they're a small quirky thing with a small quirky audience which was which by his account that audience was tailing away you know rather than growing book by book it was tailing right. away so he's very dismissive about it um, that was him now he's written a very bloody good screenplay which is you know makes him that's a talent he can take anywhere else. Um, oh gosh, the animators! I, I don't, I, I don't like to name one because right. that's, that's invidious. I'll only say that that half of them were known to me, and half weren't. And the, and the ones that weren't known to me, uh, there's been a series of amazing revelations. How good some of these people are. We tend to be, we tend to be a little bit, maybe even a bit parochial at our men, and think that only, that only our people are good enough. You know, our our, our established talent. And it was very interesting to get in people who come from a different background, with a different CVs. I didn't, people I'd, whose, whose work I'd never seen before mm -hmm. would come along and, um, you know, amaze me, amaze me with their animation. The, the, the animators, they end up stepping up. The quality of the animators, the performance, no, no, the performance is the word, because the actual, you know, Quality like smoothness, I don't, I don't value, but performance I do value, and, and it was lovely to work with new people with a great sense of comedy, comic performance. Mm -hmm. Just as far as the future for features or products yeah. in general, is there anything that can be talked about at this stage? 
Uh, I fear not really. Perhaps I'll talk about it, but, certainly, but that's, spe- that's speculative because you know, that we have a sequel, I hope. There's definitely a sequel idea. And I'd like to do it. Doing sequels is a bit like doing um, adapting books, which mm-hmm. is to so say that it, it hasn't interested me in the past. You know, I've not wanted to do sequels. If you work on a film like Chicken Run, that would be the prime example, and you work on a film, you get to the end and you deliver what you want, and you've told it story, that's how I think, you know, I used to think, wow, that story's told, and it's a great surprise when somebody says, have you got another idea in mind? A new story, where, where do we start? But the Pirates is more like, in this sense, it's like Wallace and Gromit, because it's, it feels like one of a series of adventures. Mm-hmm. It's just written, it's written that way, you know, yeah. and, uh, and in a way, like, like, like Wallace and Gromit, like a series of adventures, very often um, you don't need to radically change the world at the end compared to the beginning. You, you know, probably you have your world, the, the world is threatened by some outside force, you know, the, 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 the relationships are threatened, and you have an adventure and you resolve that, and you, you fight off that threat, that kind of thing. Um, and, then you, and then you do it again. If, if, you know, I, don't mean, I don't mean it's easy, because it ain't easy, but, but it feels like we're liberated to another pirate story. Mm-hmm. And it's such a it was it was such a very amusing world to be in, you know, for, for everyone. For everyone, I think there was something about it, as if we were, as if we had a license to be comic and silly and play around and stuff like that, which is which is a very nice license to have. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for talking. Is that to me. Okay. Yep. My pleasure. So, good. Yes. Uh, uh, very good luck with everything. Thank I'm, you. I'm sure, it'll. Do very well, but it's. Uh, I, I I shouldn't be. I'm not. I'm not complacent. I think it'll do well in Britain. I hope that America will, will take their hearts. That would be very helpful mm. if they would. That was Peter Lord, director of the new Ardman film, The Pirates, in an adventure with scientists known in the states as the Pirates' Band of Misfits, because the concept of an adventure with scientists, I suppose, was was beyond them. I think the uh, the people in the UK get the better title. And it's, you know, it's what the book's called as well. Are the books good? The books are fantastic. The the, the um, Gideon Defoe books, there's a, a unique brand of humour to the books that, um, although the, it's impossible to translate in film, um, I think they managed to capture th- in a different medium. And great that they got the guy to actually write the film. Absolutely. I hadn't yeah. realised that it was actually a different story. It's a loose know? interpretation. It's yeah. a very loose interpretation. Obviously, Darwin's in the book. Right, right. Uh, right. Queen Victoria's not in the book. Are there elements of like subsequent books that are kind of thrown in? Because I remember like Lemony Snicket, there was like a thing where they made a movie of that and it was like a whole bunch of books kind of taken apart and put back together in one film. Well, I, I, saw, a, that with us? I saw on Wikipedia that it was a cross between The Adventure with Scientists and the second book, which is An Adventure in Whaling. I don't think that's true. I okay. can't see any elements of adventure. It's odd for it. Wikipedia to, to not it is, be isn't it? It's 1,000% reliable. A, a rare lapse on Wikipedia's, <laughs> on Wikipedia's part there. So yeah, great to, that they actually got you know the guy who wrote the books to write the screenplay as well. It keeps it not necessarily, you know, a faithful adaptation because they changed a bunch of stuff, but it, uh, uh, you know, keeps it true to what the guy was trying to achieve with those characters and those story ideas. And yeah, I'd love to see a sequel. That being said, I haven't seen the first one, but from what everyone's saying, you know, if they're going to make a series of these movies, you know, this seems like a, a strong, you know, newer, new vehicle. For yeah, absolutely. Well, when, when, I, um, when I saw the film, usually when I see a film this good, I'm pretty precious about it. I'm pretty like, oh, don't make a second one, you'll spoil it, you know, but I do want to see a sequel to this. 
We would really like um, you to get involved with this podcast, dear listener. Um, if you could uh, get in touch with uh, podcast at squiggly.co.uk or Twitter, uh, we are at squiggly. I see you have a sheet labelled fun facts. No, no, this is all from my mind. This oh, is okay, all, okay. all memorised. Okay, gotcha. Did you know that a crew of 525 people worked on this film, including 33 animators and 41 shooting units in four studios? I did not know that. Well, you do now. That's a very specific figure to have memorised. Did you know that Queen Victoria's treasure room boasts over 400,000 gold coins? You counted those on the screen. Well, yes, it did. I asked them to pause it. Uh-huh. Ardman's uh, <laughs> prop team also created more than 220,000 background key and animatable props to fill the film sets. It's sort of spectacular when you see this stuff written down. And uh, uh, sorry to break the illusion that we were not reading this, but... Um, I really am sort of envious of people who can make things, you know, with their hands. And uh, even though I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of, like, 3D in movies, it's films like this that, that kind of justify it more because you can get way more of a sense of, you know, the, the detail that went into it. I watched it in 3D. All the areas that are uh, claustrophobic, you get the real feeling of that in 3D. Yeah. And it's nice. It's like you're, it's like you're in the room with them. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know if it's gonna stick around. To be honest, like every time they they've implemented it, it, it just it has its day and then it kind of goes away and then it comes back like yo-yos. And it's I was more impressed with it, you know, the way they used it in Arthur Christmas, like as opposed to other three D films I've seen in like the last four years. It seems like the technology is developing. Like you don't put on the glasses and all of a sudden everything's like eight shades darker anymore. Like they've they've sorted that out. But if you're someone like me who has glasses already and doesn't like contacts, you're wearing a pair of glasses over your glasses and you'd, you'd feel sort of ridiculous. But, you know, if you're an appreciator of the, the medium, then uh, it's definitely a perk. You know, I personally don't feel that every film that uses it really needs to use it. But, yeah, this is one of those, um, this is one of those exceptions. Yeah. But I have to, like, i got to sit right at the back now. I can't watch a whole film in 3D if I'm anywhere, you know, other than right in the last row because I get headaches I'm old. <laughs> Where did my youth go? Did you know that 140 sets of eyelids were created for the key pirate crew? I assume that's the intern's job. <laughs> yes. I'd take that gig. Which bit did you do? Well, every time the character blinks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like this one. 50 packs of baby wipes and some KY jelly were used to clean the puppets and simulating water in shots. I interviewed Adam Elliott last year and he was talking about using KY jelly for all the water. It's just a really great you know, product in general, if you want to make your puppets cry. Yeah. And would you like to be the uh, the runner that has to go down to the store and buy a thousand packs of KY jelly without any explanation? No, oh, they already know me down there. <laughs> I've got a discount on the KY jelly. They know I buy in bulk <clears throat> as an auteur animator, of course. Says here Peter Lord has a cameo in the film. Does that mean he has a voice or did they make the puppet he look does, like yeah. him? No, he doesn't. The puppet doesn't look like Peter Lobb. But he, but it's his voice. It's his voice. Cool. Yeah. Well, it's just not his, his exact voice, but it's uh, it's a very good part. Are there like, like cameos sort of throughout the film? Because I know after Christmas had lots of like little one line cameos here and there. No, no. no I think um, that went nowhere. <laughs> Brian Blessed appears, who is perfectly cast as the Pirate King. He is. Uh, shouty man mountain kind of a uh, uh, a new direction for Brian Blessed yeah yeah. <laughs> not the Brian Blessed we're familiar with at all the shy yeah. and retiring Brian Blessed uh-huh. has been given has finally been given a chance to, uh, to 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 come into his own yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. it's good it's good to see yeah
So this week, the uh, the news reached us that the government were going to introduce much-needed tax incentives to the animation industry. And it reached us in a very, very witty way. It did. Uh. It did, in a fantastically witty way that only politicians can yeah. uh, can uh, deliver. Should we have a listen to that? Uh, yes, I, th- I think the world needs to hear it again. Today I am announcing our intention to introduce similar schemes for the video games, animation and high-end TV production industries. Not only will this help stop premium British TV programs like Birdsong being made abroad, it will also attract top international investors like Disney and HBO to make more of their premium shows in the UK. It will support our brilliant video games and animation industries too. Because Mr Deputy Speaker, it is the determined policy of this government that we keep Wallace and Gromit exactly where they are. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, it makes my flesh crawl, that contrived House of Parliament fake, like, here, here order, order, <laughs> that, like, theatrical nonsense. Anyway, good it news was, yeah. <laughs> in an otherwise pretty devastating budget report. I mean, there is, you know, 70% of me does want to put my head back in the sand and, and you know, breathe into a, a paper bag again, but, you know longer term or you know within the next year or so we didn't think it was going to happen so yeah it is good news it is fantastic news obviously uh, the work of Animation UK uh, Ollie Hyatt who has wrote a few articles for Squiggly and mm-hmm. uh, anyone wants to check them out can go onto our website not to speak down to the people who might be listening but you know just in case there's anyone out there who who doesn't really have the first clue what the implications are of these tax incentives I mean what, what would you say are the, the main perks well, the whole idea—the whole idea of the tax incentives—is basically uh, any percentage given back to uh, TV series produced within the UK. Canada get it, mm-hmm. France get it, and so all these TV series made abroad, um, they get the tax money back, and they get to make TV series. They get to employ people. They get to 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 produce this work. Unfortunately, we don't get it. We do get it now, or we will get it from April next year, mm-hmm. 2013. Once we do receive it, given the scope of what British animation can create, I'm pretty sure we'll, to put it rather crudely, smash it. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we, will, we will show the world what Britain is made of. We had a word with uh, Miles Bullo, who's the head of broadcast at Artman. We asked him what uh, the implications of the tax relief would have on both the studio and the animation industry in general. Well, I think it's um, it's not just the studios, it's kind of animation uh, animation producers everywhere. But, you know, we feel that we've been operating on, a, on an uneven playing field, that, that our competitors in Ireland and France and Canada and Australia and Germany and Benelux and Singapore and many, many more have just had a sort of unfair advantage, if you like. They've, they've, they've had government support and we've seen a huge decline in the work being done in the UK for um, UK television channels. And I really think this tax credit can offer us an opportunity to reverse that trend, to really kind of rebuild um, the UK animation um, business and industry and, and get more and more content made in the UK onto British television screens. Wonderful. So exciting times then. Definitely very exciting, yes. It's, I mean, we've got, a, we've got a year, probably a year to wait. So it's going to take a year to um, get the fine print sorted out. And, um, and the devil will be in the detail. 
but we're really hopeful that it can be uh, in force in time for April 2013. Um, so we've all got to kind of hunker down and be patient uh, for that year, but hopefully by then, uh, at that point, we can start to see a real difference. Miles Below there, um, head of broadcast at Ardman. So we've got a few uh, a few letters here from a few uh, of you guys. Uh, so we thought it'd be a good idea to get the uh, point of view of some of the uh, uh, the other companies in the UK um, and see what they thought about this uh, tax relief. Ben, starting with Mark Taylor from A Productions. Tax breaks for the animation industry are a much needed shot in the arm. Of course, we'll have to wait and see how the government makes it work, and it's important to make them competitive enough with, say, Ireland or France, otherwise the advantages for shipping work overseas will remain. There's loads of reasons why we should try and retain work here in the UK, and this absolutely helps the economic argument for doing so. It should help rebuild the industry and both support and create new jobs in the sector. Without this kind of intervention, it's hard to see much future for the industry, so tax breaks are welcome and much needed. I mean, I agree with all of that. One of the major concerns, I think, before, and I think it was something that Miles had had, uh, mentioned in his blog recently when he was talking about choreographing this whole, uh, I guess you'd call it a campaign, Uh was sort of grabbing headlines and getting people's attention, and there was Mm -hmm. that concern that, you know, based on not misinformation but I think a certain misinterpretation that Arben was just going to start outsourcing all its work to you know other t- other territories for people like me with dual citizenship hence my rather muddied not quite anything accent there was sort of an appeal in well maybe I should just flee <laughs> like you know the rat from the proverbial <laughs> sinking ship I mean it, you know and it's not very uh, uh, patriotic but you know these are the things you contemplate if you have the option well this, think, this was the fear wasn't it the yeah. fear was that obviously there'd be no animation in industry in the UK people would go to Canada and I've you know I've met people that actually did go to Canada just to find work you know I mean w- it's a lovely place well absolutely yeah it's uh, it, I'm sure it is but mm-hmm. um it's an awful long way to commute. This is what Aaron from uh, Slurpee Studios in London thought. He put that Slurpee where we were glued to the budget on Wednesday. Uh, and when the good news was announced that the UK animation industry would finally get tax credits and be on a level playing field with the rest of the world, we all jumped out of our chairs and cheered as if England had won the World Cup. It is fantastic news for the whole industry, for small and large studios alike, and for those graduating from animation courses. We really look forward to being part of this new dawn for UK animation, and we owe Ollie and the Animation UK team a drink or two. It is a very encouraging thing to to know that there are people fighting for these causes, and that yeah, know. absolutely. From what I can tell, there's this perception of animation uh, as as rather ephemeral, rather you know, pretty much just for kids, which is sort of farcical when you see that it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It, you, every an- advert break. It's yeah. full of animation. It's mm. TV titles, you know, TV shows. So to kind of say that it's this inconsequential factor of, you know, entertainment or marketing or whatever is, uh-huh. is ridiculous. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's great to actually have someone like Miles and Ollie, you know, really kind of take the reins and say, actually, no, 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 pay attention. You yeah, know, This is important. Uh-huh. And, uh, and people obviously out there, you know, care about it as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you can see why, you know, it's a really, really undeniably oversaturated market at the moment as far as, you know, new animators, new graduates. People want to be a part of this world, but the opportunities just aren't there at the no. moment. I believe Miles talked uh, at Encounters last year, the big film and animation festival we have in Bristol, as part of the Animation Alliance, which is a newly formed group of, of UK-based animators 
with a similar kind of agenda of, of, of you know keeping a sense of national identity with the the content that's produced it was kind of a, a, a call to arms I suppose or an introductory uh, uh, meeting slash presentation they made where some really really uh, unpleasant home truths were revealed just about how undervalued animation is mm-hmm. how low the budgets are now you know budgets for animation have gone down you know to like 10 percent of what they were back in the day mm-hmm. you know back when people were commissioning content for you know ten thousand a minute it's now one thousand a minute and you know in a way that goes hand in hand with the visual style that's very much in vogue at the moment but that visual style is a style of a very economic, very asset-based, cheap-looking animation. You know, eventually that's not going to be in fashion anymore. And then you have all these people who work in animation that don't actually know how to animate. They know how to do motion graphics with characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's enough to keep them employed. But if, you know, a more traditional style of animation, you know, full animation, I guess, as, as it's known, comes back in vogue again, um, then these people aren't going to have any kind of legitimate education behind them. They'll have to pretty much train from scratch if they want to continue a career in the industry. Hmm. I mean, there are obviously exceptions, like, like the big studios where, you know, money is going to go in, like Arben, of course, and uh, people like Studio AKA, who who have a very, you know, uh, uh, very technically proficient crew of people working for them. Absolutely, but it's, yeah. it's, it's It goes hand in hand with a really, really positive MO where they will make their own films in their spare time. So, you know, it's it's we can see... In that, a lot of potential, but it's it's potential that's been significantly stymied for a while now. Really since not that long before I graduated, and, and it's sort of been my entire perception of the animation industry. And when you get an announcement like the announcement we had last week, uh, it, it's, it's like, oh my god, you know, something. Yeah, you know? obviously, hopefully, animation will flourish. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's the point. Anyway, a few more letters. Um, we got a letter here from David Ramsbottom uh, from uh, Muller and Productions. Uh, he's the creative director. Dear Squiggly, firstly, congratulations to all those involved with championing the UK's creative industry and promoting the wonderful work we all do. As one of the UK's smaller animation companies, we welcome the news of tax relief as it will increase our chances for growth. We are an anim nation. Mm-hmm. And we want to be for many years to come. Regards, David. David Ramsbottom there, a uh, fellow who shares both my cautious optimism and indeed my uh, my fondness for puns. This is Steve Smith from Beakers. Most studios with their own IP here have big trouble trying to fund the project without partnering or co-producing with a studio abroad, like Ireland or Canada, where tax breaks are already in place. So all that work goes abroad and the government loses their portion of that revenue, which is just silly. Forget banking, animation is the main breadwinner for the UK government. Maybe. There's only so much money the government has in its coffers, so bunging animation this opportunity is a blessing. I sincerely hope it lasts, and I'm certain it'll work out in the government's favour anyway. Once the details are published, we can really make the most of it, and it could prove quite revolutionary for our industry, which is no mean feat. Bring it on! My only complaint was that Wallace and Gromit grabs all the headlines when there's so much more to animation in this country, in my humble opinion. I mean, I think that's a fair enough opinion. Realistically, you know, Wallace and Gromit are sort of the face of the nation, but Britain's contribution to animation is pretty significant, you know. I think in a lot of respects that leads to the genesis of something like Squiggly, like what we're trying to do here, you know. it's it's We don't limit what we want to talk about to, you know, British animation, but... It's where we're sort of coming from for the simple reason that, you know, there's a lot of it out there and a lot of it's very, very good. Absolutely. Obviously, we can promote Some of that. it's That's terrible. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, you know, I'm, and I'm not going to say which ones because I want to work. But, you know, it's, it's at the end of the day, I think Steve is right. You know, there is a, a sense that, you know, 
England animation Ardman. You know, he needs to grab headlines. Everyone knows, everyone loves Wallace and Gromit. Plus, he can't say keep Bob the Builder in England because Bob the Builder's already gone abroad. Yeah. He can't say keep Thomas the Tank Engine in Britain because Thomas the Tank Engine's gone abroad. We're rapidly losing these these national treasures. Wallace and Gromit, luckily, still in the UK. Yeah, obviously uh-huh. the, the government are going to announce further details closer to the time, and obviously we'll give a more a more yeah. in depth analysis of how this applies to our our wonderful industry. So um, we've also had some comments uh, through the Twitter uh, at Squiggly uh, with regards to Glenn Keane, uh, obviously a legendary Disney animator. He animated the majority of Little Mermaid. Um, the character, not the film, that would mm-hmm. be quite a uh, feat for any man yeah, uh, who's yeah. not Bill Plimpton to animate a full <laughs> uh, 2D feature. He worked on uh, many of uh, Disney's uh, modern classics. Uh, just some reaction, really, to the news that he's left Disney. He's decided to part ways with the uh, with the studio. Uh, so we've had a few tweets through, so I thought we might read them out. Sure. Okay. Uh, straight straight off, uh, we've got Gareth uh, Kavanagh, uh, at Gareth Cav. Uh, Disney doesn't need 2D to make profits. Neither does Glen Keane need Disney to create fantastic animation. Did he give any reasons for leaving Disney? He gave, he, he gave very vague very vague reasons really I don't think there's that he didn't say I've had enough or anything like that was it acrimonious or just a parting of ways oh just maybe just maybe just a part well I'm sure we'll find out I think just you you work somewhere you know for any period of time Hmm. you know Uh, I don't want to talk about a man's personal life but obviously he had a health scare I do want to talk about (laughs) a man's personal life (laughs) I'm I'm yes I'm very nosy well he, he had he had a he had a health scare which um, if you if you sort of read the news, it says that he had a health scare which knocked him off. He was the original director for Tangled, right. and then he had a, a heart scare, uh, and so he, his role was sort of uh, lessened on Tangled. Um, and also his dad, who's the uh, artist of Family Circus, the popular American. Oh yeah, uh, he, he died in November last year, so that must have hit him. I mean, I don't know what I'd do in that situation, but maybe it's a time for reflection and a time for. Aerial life and yeah, yeah. Perhaps. This is from Karen Morris at Casmania89. That's a shame. It was lovely to see Princess and the Frog, but I guess technology is taking over now. Uh, uh, seems, uh, I mean, technology... He was on Pr- Princess and the Frog, presumably. Well, uh, I haven't seen that yet. You haven't seen it? I really wanted, but I never got around to... It's good, yeah. Um, just the it nostalgia. seemed awfully like they took the frog from the old Warner Brothers, you know, the, hello, my baby, hello. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah one, very one froggy evening, yeah. yeah. Um, there is an element to, to one froggy evening about it, but I suppose there's only so many ways you can caricature a frog. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah it's a fantastic film it's nice to see uh, Disney create 2D films and when Disney creates 2D films they do pull out all mm. the stops there's no there's no um, shortcuts in it the, the, the animation is very fluid as a as a man who loves 2D and, and makes 2D films myself I would say that uh, or at least tries to make 2D films myself I would say that it was very enjoyable mm. very competent very uh, worthy of uh, the title of a Disney classic very good isn't it strange that were you always a fan of the Disney classics growing up or is it something that that becomes more of an experience as you get more immersed in animation I would agree that it became a lot more of an experience and I paid a lot more attention I didn't know who uh, Eric Goldberg was the first time I watched Aladdin mm-hmm. when I was 11 years old um, I didn't know who Andreas Deja was when I first right, saw right. Scar in, in 1995 when, when, when that came out, 1994. But yes, I would say I, I got an awful lot more into animation as I became more involved in it. 
I think definitely as a kid, like we weren't too discerning. Like we could watch something like you know an '80s show, like you know Transformers or, or Ghostbusters or Turtles or something with really quite poor animation, and then we'd watch a Disney movie, and it would be sort of the same experience mm-hmm. because we were engaged for completely different ways. You see something like you know uh, uh, a Disney classic now as an adult and with someone who knows a little bit about how animation works, and it becomes an entirely different viewing experience. Uh, Nikki Whitfield um, at Neek Online says, "What?" Disney without Glen Keane is like Oreos without chocolate milkshake. I like how she hashtagged Glen Keane. Yeah, I guess to to get it trending. Oh, it probably was actually. It was, yeah, it was, yeah it was it was it was big news for geeks throughout These the world. These kids in yeah. their hashtagging. I'm yeah. so out of touch. Um, so Joe, not much shocked me, but that news did. Oh, get in there. You yeah, Oreos without chocolate milkshake. I don't I don't think I've. Uh, uh. The real reason I wanted to move to Canada had nothing to do with tax at all. It was because Oreos are so much nicer over there. Oh, right. The, the white shit in the middle is so much more sweet. <laughs> it's really like, oh, it's like eating icing sugar. <laughs> they just they can't get it right here. It's all powdery. Well, anyway. What's a chocolate milkshake like over in Canada? <laughs> it's not the same. Terrible. It's like drinking ash. <laughs> you got to take the good with the bad, you know? So what, 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 what Nikki says here, I mean, is, is it shocking, really? People can become very attached to you know practitioners that they're fond of so if someone who who really brings a lot to a table then mm-hmm. decides to leave that table it's like oh well do i want to keep going back to that table this is a very table centric analogy yeah yeah <laughs> but uh, uh i'm not sure if i'd find it shocking necessarily but I, I i could appreciate that it would be very disappointing you mm. know if, if it's someone that you're you admire a lot you know or like a bolt out of the blue maybe i think i think out of all these i do agree with uh, with gareth the first uh, comment that um that gareth you win yes gareth you win <laughs> you uh, win at twitter you you win the twitter competition uh the prize is absolutely nothing congratulations the prize is the esteem of winning the twitter competition <laughs> that's what we all dream of as, as youngins growing up surely you can walk around with your head held high uh, well i do agree with with gareth he does say that disney doesn't need 2d to make profit mainly because Disney's got more hands than an octopus. We've got the Disney yeah. store and everything else. Disney doesn't need animation to make profit, really, does it? Uh, neither does Glen Keane need Disney to create fantastic animation. And probably depending on the circumstances, you know, they, they wouldn't be entirely not receptive to him coming back at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Andreas Deja left and, and went back. It's yeah. If you've got the talent, yeah. So everyone listening, feel free to get in touch. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, uh, get any kind of feedback. We want this to be polished and engaging, so any thoughts on what we've discussed uh, on this podcast, please get in touch at podcast at squiggly.co.uk. So you recently interviewed Fraser McLean, yeah? Uh, that's right, yeah. Uh, we met last year at Bradford, at the Bradford Animation Festival, uh, and we got the opportunity to discuss his fantastic book, um, Setting the Scene. Mm. It's uh, a, a must-have book, I would say, for uh, anyone who is interested in animation layout. It's a subject that's not discussed in great depth. It certainly warrants discussion. I mean, it's a huge part of the the atmosphere of any kind of animated project is you know Absolutely. how well it's laid out. The you know yeah. Is it a sort of historical book or is it like instructional? Is it for like people who appreciate that it or is it more like people who want to become layout artists in the future? Well, it's a hist- it's a historical book um, which explains what layout means basically uh-huh. through interviews with uh, people oh, within the industry. So you've got people like Brad Bird discussing the the craft of of layout and, mm-hmm. and how important it is and. To be honest, I mean, there hasn't. There's a few books on layout, but nothing that really 
explains it in such depth. So it was a, it was a fascinating interview where he discussed the process of making the book um, and the sort of adventure it took him on. Cool. Let's have a listen. Mm. Well, thanks a lot for talking to um, to Squiggly Fraser. You're um, welcome. It's just, pleasure. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, early in your career, obviously, you worked for uh, Richard Williams um, on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And what, what was that like as an experience? It was kind of bewildering because up until that point, I had no artistic input to any of the films that I'd worked on. Uh, which saying that makes it sound as though I had an artistic input on on Roger Rabbit. Um, uh, what I did when I went to art college was I I studied graphic design. Back in the nineteen eighties, uh, I was at, I graduated in nineteen eighty three. None of the art colleges in the UK. I think there's a couple of them that that uh, there was Farnham, and I think later on Edinburgh uh, developed a, an animation course. But even where there were animation courses, it wasn't uh, advertised very openly that, that that was available. So you couldn't really train, you certainly couldn't train for the movie industry. And my interest in movie making and animation developed while I was on the graphic design course, partly because the college acquired video equipment and I was interested in what was happening with, traditionally a graphic design student would have perhaps gone on to design album sleeves. And in the 1980s, the big deal was that music was now being sold through the medium of video. So music video, or as it was called in those days, pop promo, you know, pop promotional video. I had um, taken the college video equipment and started making these pretty crappy uh, music videos. I did also have a, a go at doing some plasticine animation, but that was disastrous because I didn't have the kit. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but when I was about to graduate, one of the tutors suggested that if I really was serious about wanting to do movie work, the Scottish Film Council at the time ran a training scheme and the resources were limited so they could only offer a traineeship for doing camera or sound or editing. And the editing process of the video work I'd done at college, I had always, uh, or to begin with, I had turned up at the offline editing suite uh, armed with all these pneumatic tapes but with no clear indication. I hadn't logged anything so I never knew where anything was and the technician used to really lose her temper. So I began developing the proper habit of logging where everything was and counting off on the time code and all that. So I had it in my head already that if I did want to work in movies and I wanted to do anything at all creative in movies, the larger part of what you're doing is recognizing the responsibility you have to the other people in the production process. And editing was clearly the, the boiler room of the movie making process. So of those three options, I asked to be taken on as a, a, an editing trainee. And the deal with the Film Training Trust was that if there was editing work available for you to begin your apprenticeship, you would do that. But in the interim, if other jobs came up on a week or during a month where it was quiet in the cutting rooms, you would go out on location and work with people or you would do runner's work for the art department on a feature film. And also Channel 4, um, came to life just as I was about to leave college. So there was an enormous amount of interest and investment in unusual quirky products and projects. So I did a lot of work in current affairs, local news gathering, documentary, drama. And I thought, I imagined after that, that I was gonna be on a reasonably good trajectory towards a career in film editing. Again, with the idea that eventually I would direct. 
But the trouble was that the, the whole industry kind of seized up. So each week I would buy the trade papers and Screen International carried this little advertisement uh, one week, which had a picture of Mickey Mouse sitting at a desk. And it said, uh, Walt Disney and Amblin are coming to London and they're making a movie combining cartoons and live action. We're looking for talented animation artists. By no stretch of the imagination was I a talented animation artist, but I had continued when I was doing the video work on the graphics course, I'd continued doing a lot of the traditional observational drawing, which at the time was, was not really encouraged or accepted in the context of commercial design. They wanted you to do something that was idiosyncratic or quirky. They didn't like you to do anything that was kind of photorealistic. But I had that as a habit. So I kept a lot of those drawings in a, in a folio. And when Disney didn't, I sent in a letter um, and said, you know, do you have any spaces in the cutting room for this project? And they said, no, it's a really tiny cutting room. Um, when I called them up about it, Don Hahn got the application back out of the envelope and went, well, we don't need people in the cutting room, but it says you were at art college. Can you draw? Mm. Um, so uh, two hours later, I was up there with my folio of figure drawings and perspective and lighting studies. And I, I, uh, half an hour after I, I walked into the building, uh, I'd been offered uh, a, a job starting on the Monday. And I worked for Chris Knott. And Chris Knott, uh, Richard Williams was um, the centre of the studio. They, they came to London to do it because he was based in London. He had the studio in Soho. But they moved the whole thing up to a building in Camden called The Forum. And the guy who had been in charge of developing all of the level-by-level uh, level shading and lighting hand-drawn effects that were superimposed on the characters and then you did this double exposure softening off the edges of it so that you had this beautiful rounded look that matched the lighting. Chris Knott was the guy who headed up that department and he and Don Hahn saw in the drawings I had in my portfolio a, a sense of lighting that made them choose me to go into the effects department rather than character animation. Uh, and after Roger Rabbit was finished, um, two of the guys who had been producers for Richard Williams set up a company called Passion Pictures. And the Roger Rabbit look was extraordinarily popular uh, for several years after the film came out. And Passion Pictures and Chris and his crew of people, including myself, kind of cornered the market in uh, doing uh, effects work on these animated TV commercials that were done in the style of Roger Rabbit. So that was how I got into doing animation commercially. Uh, through this very, very crooked, uh, prolonged path. So it wasn't really something that I was able to plot out or plan. It was a series of, uh, you know, sort of uh, frustrate, frustrating dead ends and happy accidents, I guess. <laughs> uh, excellent. Obviously, you're saying that the Roger Rabbit technique was uh, continued being popular. I mean, you worked on Space Jam as well, I believe, uh, which employed a similar style right. to the characters. Uh, I... I I left Passion Pictures to go and work for a company called Cambridge Animation Systems. And they, I, I joined them in 1993. They had spent three years in research and development with um, a very brave attempt to do automatic in-betweening using only the X and the Y axis. There was no Z axis, there was no depth. So it was kind of like what Flash became, if you like. Mm. Um, it, and what you had was a Bezier curve system that allowed... Uh, you to create, um, you would scan a drawing in of a key position of a, a hand-drawn character, and you would do what was called conforming. You would conform the Bezier curve equivalent of the character to that drawing, and then you would conform to the key drawing, and the system would do the in-between. 
largely because the system itself didn't understand depth and rotation. That had limits in terms of how far that could, could work. Although, like I say, it was a great precursor to what has gone on to happen with the animation of flat graphic elements in programs like Flash. Um, but they did, at the end of 93, develop an ink and paint package uh, at the encouragement of one of their client companies in France because there were other systems like Tic Tac Toon and US Animation at the time. And the, the worry was that Animo had all this tremendous power in the, in the software, uh, but because there, there wasn't yet an, an ink and paint component in the system, it was losing out to competitors. So they put together a really fantastic ink and paint uh, system for digitizing the lines of flood filling the areas for the characters. And overnight, it became something that DreamWorks bought, Warner Brothers bought. When I left Cambridge Animation Systems, I went to work at Telemagination in London because they were the biggest UK user of Animo. So I helped to run all the Animo network for Telemagination, not only doing Animals of Farthing Wood, but also working on um, commercials that were brought into us by uh, Snowden Fine or by Uli Meyer. We would do the uh, compositing in Animo and even sometimes output onto 35mm film. And because we were doing, I think it was an anti-smoking campaign for German television, and Uli Meyer had animated this in studio, and they were beginning their work on uh, the preliminary character designs and compositing tests for, for Space Jam. And because Telemagination and Animo were involved in that, the guys at Warner Brothers heard my name, and they also knew that I'd done the Roger Rabbit stuff. So I knew the software, I knew the real people in cartoons techniques, so eventually, it was a kind of inevitable thing, and I got hired. I spent, I was actually working for Premier Films in London, who were one of the satellite companies on Space Jam, but I spent the larger part of 1996 in the old Imperial Bank building attached to the Sherman Oaks shopping mall, the Galleria shopping mall in Sherman Oaks, on the fourth and fifth floors, um, working with all the people in the scene planning department, the final check department, the income paint department, all the departments that were users of the Animo software. And at that time, Disney were introducing more and more digital um, processes to their production pro um, with the advent of CAPS, the computer-aided production system, which they had first used for a couple of scenes at the end of Little Mermaid, and then it was used on um, Rescuers Down Under. They had developed a job description called Artistic Coordinator, and they were finding guys like Dan Hansen and Randy Fulmer from inside the Disney Feature Studios to go into this position. There's people that were comfortable with digital technology but were uh, known to have a full understanding of the traditional animation processes. But by the time they began crewing up for Tarzan, which was really going to introduce an, another challenge, which was that they were going to use this system called Deep Canvas. So again, it was kind of like Space Jam and Roger Rabbit, that you had these flat elements that were going to be combined with dimensional elements. And my, my name, through friends of mine over at, uh, at Disney, and particularly uh, Chris Jenkins, who was working over there, and I'd been, uh, he and I, I'd been his assistant uh, on uh, effects work on Roger Rabbit, he'd gone over to the States to work for them. So he put my name in the hat and they offered me the job of artistic coordinator on Tarzan. And that was actually the first point where I really properly had access to what the layout department did because everything that we'd been doing with working with traditional effects levels on traditionally animated characters, almost everything had been superimposed on a live action plate 
And in those days, we would work over a black and white enlargement on peg-registered photographic paper, a stat of each frame. Um, you know, there was nothing like going into a, a computer and actually, you know, moving it around digitally or physically, you were putting these things on and off the peg bars. So um, that meant that it was, I hardly ever saw traditional layout artwork or background paintings because that was just the first 10 years of my work in animation was putting cartoons into the real world. So when I walked into the first of the layout approval sessions that I, I was required to attend as, as coordinator, I just, my eyes kind of rolled and I thought, this is how the film gets made. These are the people that make the film. Um, and my primitive understanding of it had been, well, having seen you know examples of layout artwork on things like you know Burger King adverts where you had the kids club treehouse or something I'd think layout must mean it's the background painting before it's been colored in you know that was about as sophisticated as my understanding was of layout the fact that they took care of everything of the translation from the storyboard material into the story reels the way that they decided the scene lengths the editorial continuity the paths of action for the characters the positioning and that they were they were handling the cinematography, the lighting as well, because the illustration uh, that you do for the background, all of the lighting information is coming from the artist's imagination through the pencil and onto the page. So there isn't even a physical object that you suspend a, a, a lighting source uh, next to. Uh, the, the scope of it, the detail of it, and the responsibility of it, I would go in and out of these layout approval sessions each week and just think, wow, you know, everybody lionizes the directors and the, the character animators, but just looking at what these, these people did just blew me away. I thought it was, was extraordinary. And it, it sort of from that point, I began looking at it and thinking, you know, this is, this is kind of a missing chapter in the history of cinematography, you know. So that was, that was um, yeah, a strange kind of sequence of odd productions fixed in this one very, you know, temporarily popular procedure of, doing the Roger Rabbit style thing, but that was the, the, the sequence of events that hid from me what layout really was and why it was important. That leads us um, nicely onto the onto the book. Uh, congratulations, um, setting the scene: the art and evolution of animation layout. Uh, written by yourself, uh, published by Chronicle, with a nice forward by Pixar's um, Pete Doctor. I mean, uh, when did you decide that animation layout? would be a good format for the book. Um, it seems that it's a subject that's not as well researched as uh, many other subjects, uh, such as animation performance or animation design and pre-production. Um, the answer is in the question. Uh, the, the, the book um, wasn't there. Uh, when I began uh, being invited in to teach on the various animation courses that had sprung up while I had been uh, away working in the industry, um, I felt that it was important to be able to build up my own library of animation and movie history and technique books so that I could read and recommend certain books to, to, to students because very often you don't have a lot of time with one group of students or in one college. And I felt, you know, there is this wealth of information out there. I need to read these books myself so that it's, it's possible for me to say, yeah, if you're looking to... Uh, find out information about timing of a character performance, then you really want to go and look at the Tony White Animator's Workbook, or you want to look at Richard Williams' uh, Animator Survival Kit. You want to know about storyboarding, go and look at Paper Dreams by John K. Maker. You want to look at 
pre-production and look at before the animation begins, you know, any of the John Kane Maker books. Um, and there were some fantastic examples of layout artwork in, for example, the Pierre Lambert book on Pinocchio. And there were some terrific Tex Avery um, layout drawings in the John Kane Maker Tex Avery book. But there, I couldn't find a book anywhere that really described how all of that developed. And that crucial thing about the relationship between the animator and the camera. And this was even more difficult uh, by the year 2000 because, um, and I began sort of being invited in to teach on, on, on different courses um, in the UK and over in Austria. I've taught quite a lot at the Fachhochschule in Salzburg in Austria. And I've taught at Ravensbourne in London and you know, lots of different places. But early on, the courses that were asking me in uh, even where students were doing hand-drawn animation, of course, they were scanning that animation in, and then it was being manipulated and you know photographed inside the computer. But the camera was just a little mathematical construct inside the mind of the computer. If you were then going to take that same group of students and show them any of the artwork that was created for the background layouts for Pinocchio or for the Tex Avery shorts or for any of the Looney Tunes, well, it was understandable that they might be scratching their head about why it was designed that way, why the shots were set up that way. And if none of them had actually physically been in a room with an Oxbury Rostrum camera or with any of the camera setups, and if they hadn't, for example, seen a photograph in a book of the Disney multiplane camera, the more complicated shots in Snow White and Fantasia and Pinocchio, how are they ever going to understand just how difficult that was to accomplish in the 30s and 40s because the digital technology makes that kind of thing um, butter off a knife compared to what it would have been physically to create what we would think of as camera-ready artwork that had to go in with all of the movements worked out in advance and all of the, the planning and the camera um, diagrams that had to travel with the artwork to the, the, the camera um, department. So... Um, it struck me that this was something that would be a, a useful book to have. And uh, the more I, I looked and the more I didn't find that book, I began thinking, well, maybe I'm being stupid about this. Maybe it does exist and I'm just not looking in the right place. So I started sending off emails to uh, guys like Rob Cardone, who had been in the hand-drawn anima uh, animation layout department on Tarzan and had then gone to help set up the CG layout department at Blue Sky for, for the first Ice Age movie. James Williams, who had been uh, one of the people I had worked with on the Animo system at Space Jam, and he'd gone on to DreamWorks and then on to Sony, and he'd been involved in a lot of the motion capture stuff early on in Polar Express. Uh, I wrote to all these different people, and... All of them eventually wrote back saying pretty much the same things. They're saying, no, the book doesn't exist yet. Yes, it would be great if somebody wrote it. But then the kind of last thing they all said was, writing this is really going to be like nailing jello to a plank um, because there are so many different definitions of layout. And this is just true. If you look at the way that things would happen in a, a small uh, commercial animation house like any of the ones that there were in the West End in London, when, for example, Passion uh, Pictures started out, they had Andy Knight, uh, who tragically died um, in 2008. He was a Sheridan graduate who was a, a fantastically gifted animator and director, uh, went on to set up Red Rover in, in Toronto, but he was one of the first um, animation, animation directors for, for Passion. 
And he was just an, an instinctively brilliant layout artist. So on those jobs that Passion handled where there was traditional layout artwork, he would handle all that side of it too. Uh, so there's a degree of multitasking, and in the book when I interviewed um, John Leatherbarrow, who was the uh, one of the Rostrum operators for Richard Williams, he was uh, he, he and Richard Wolfe, one of the other camera operators from the West End in London, were both saying that there was a kind of non-layout layout, you know, that they were quite accustomed to having anim animation artwork arrive, both the cell artwork from the characters and the scenic artwork from the background painters and all the camera diagrams knowing that this was coming to them from a company that didn't really have a separate layout department as such but that there were people who just in the same way that you know in the commercial world in london in the smaller companies uh there isn't a separate cleanup department for character animation the way that there is in feature animation at disney it's all done you just you animate clean you clean up as you go um so and also when i've been working on tarzan i was keenly aware of the fact that the, the deep canvas component in the Tarzan production process set that group of layout artists apart from the people that were working on Kingdom of the Sun, which became Emperor's New Groove, or the guys that were working on Atlantis, which was being done Cinemascope. And, um, so even within one company, from production to production, the, the structure, the management, the sort of architecture of the department of layout subtly shifted and changed. And the way in which character animators responded, for example, to receiving um, character layout drawings from a layout department. There were quite a lot of com companies in which the first thing a character animator would, would do is roll that up and throw it in the bin and start over. Um, so there were some contexts in which layout was not understood because it was seen as a kind of uh, second-class citizen sort of thing. Um, Others where it was just taken for granted, the stuff appeared and it was, you know, it, when, when it arrives on your desk, it arrives on your desk and you don't necessarily think too much about where it came from. But when I started the process of um, researching the book, I, I was fortunate in that a friend of mine uh, from Scotland, Shona Burns, uh, had moved to the States and she had worked for Penguin in London and she was at Chronicle. Chronicle had not only done all of the art of books for the Pixar movies, they had produced an absolutely fantastic history of matte painting by Craig Barron and Mark Cortavaz called Invisible Art. And I wrote to Shona and I said, you work for Chronicle Books. Chronicle Books have done these wonderful design and movie history books. They've done their books with Pixar. If, um, as I have been told, there is a missing book on the animation history and animation technique bookshelf, what would a company like Chronicle do about that? Would you guys commission somebody? How, how would that get written? So she copied it to uh, an editor called Matt Robinson, uh, who then unfortunately left the company. Uh, so the, the editor, uh, the two editors for the book eventually were Emily Haynes and Emily Sandoz. Uh, but Matt um, wrote back to me sort of 20 minutes later after receiving the copy of the email and went, I, we should do this book, this would be great. In the research process, the more I began talking to layout artists, and I knew that was what I needed and wanted to do because I'm not a layout artist. I, I marvel at what they do, but the book was never going to be what Fraser thinks about layout or what my working experience is because, you know, that's not been my job. So I wanted it to be very much from the horse's mouth. And as I spoke to the different people who had been through CalArts, and I spoke, for example, to Lou Romano, who was a student at CalArts, but I also spoke to Ray Aragon, who taught layout at CalArts. 
and both of them in their different ways explained how even in in that context uh, really the kind of the, the hero job that, that most people very much wanted to go after was everybody wanted to be a character animator and I think that almost that mindset um, kind of consigned layout perhaps to a sort of uh, support industry kind of thing you know within the industry uh, whereas you know the more I looked into it I thought well live action cinematographers or, or uh, directors of photography they, they have a, a, a stature and there is a kind of kudos to, to that and I thought wouldn't it be great <laughs> if one of the other parts of the process was kind of bringing this stuff into the daylight and saying you know, it's it's time that we looked at this, and it's time that this artwork was seen and celebrated. Because when it works in the context of the movie, uh, you don't see it. It's another of these things like special effects work. If it is done well, it's invisible. Um, that's never quite true for the character performance because it's like the the central performer or the lead singer in a band or the soloist in front of an orchestra. Of course you notice it because it's there. Uh, and of course that's going to be attractive to people because that's the most obvious thing. And when people introduce themselves as an animator, it's understood that they will mean they're a character animator. One of the things eventually that it was important to put in the early chapters of the book uh, was that there are so many different arts and skills and disciplines involved in the layout process because there are so many different kinds of movement in an animated feature film or TV series episode or commercial or whatever. It isn't just the movement of the performance. You have the movement of the camera, obviously. You have the movement of the edit, the co continuity, the editorial continuity. You have the movement of the other characters and the other objects. You have the movement that sometimes is created simply by changing a light source, but, but keeping the, the camera still. So it was an opportunity to open everything up and encourage particularly students of animation to appreciate that, yes, animation is about movement, but it isn't only about the movement of the performance. Actually, yeah, see where they said, uh, like, nailing jello to a wall. I mean, uh, <laughs> if, if you could sort of narrow it down, I mean, how would you describe the concept of animation layout to an animation outsider? I mean, how would you go around that? I suppose if you had to condense it, it would be to put it in the context of set design. Um, early on, the work that people were doing at studios like Fleischer or even the early sort of Otto Messmer, Felix the Cat or the Alice comedies at Disney and then moving into the the short format slapstick uh, work that you would see in the, in the, um, you know, the Merry Melodies or the Silly Symphonies, an awful lot of that physical comedy was based on vaudeville or what we in the UK would think of as music hall and it didn't happen in a particularly deep space because a lot of that comedy came from what happened in front of the you know when other stuff was being set up behind the curtain in vaudeville or in music hall you would have a, a pair of comedians who would come in and stand in front of the between the, the footlights and the fire curtain is, 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 is the way I describe it in the book. And they would go through these slapstick routines. So there wasn't an, a lot of ambition about, you know, the camera would sometimes go left to right or up and down, but it was never going to go forward or, you know, that kind of thing. So 
it would be set design because early on the, there was a tremendous overlap with flat scenic elements in theatre design, both for real theatres and for, for toy theatres, like the example I use in the book is the, the cardboard Victorian Pollock's toy theatres. Um, nowadays, the overlap is very much with level design for games um, because you are creating a completely three-dimensional virtual environment, whether it's a landscape or a cityscape, whether it's an interior or an exterior. And you hand the camera to a game player and give them this environment to explore. Uh, whereas in theatre, of course, you would never invite the audience up on the <laughs> stage. You know that it's an illusion. Um, so I, would, I suppose the short thing would be to encourage people to think of it as set design, uh, but also to think of the, the way in which that has to open up also into cinematography uh, because of what it became possible to do with cameras like the Fleischer Setback or the Disney or the Arbiwerks Multiplane. Uh, and then later on, when the digital toolkit really uh, allowed sort of movement and rotation of the camera. Um, so, yeah, set design and cinematography, I guess, mm. <laughs> if you really had to condense it. <laughs> Fraser obviously has an awful lot to say about animation, so we're going to split this interview in two, and we'll play the second part of the interview on a later podcast. So it's recently, it's been the uh, BAAs for the Uninitiated, that's the British Animation Awards. It's the uh, it's biannual uh, uh, gathering down at the uh, BFI in London. Uh, basically an awards ceremony to celebrate British animation, which mm -hmm. uh, obviously here at Squiggly, we're 100% behind that. And yeah. we managed to... Uh, managed to get down there very very fascinating evening and with some very uh, very fantastic winners as well I've never been how's the sort of setup down there is it just an event or is it like a mingling thing or do you just sit down and well announce yeah it's it's uh, it's a BFI so you, you start off um, in the cafe there and you get to mingle with a few people um, and then you go through to the cinema and uh, then, then, the, then the fun begins really it's not just a, a case of um, of announcing winners this year the uh, host was a comedian called uh, Tom Tuck he sort of he sort of peppered the ceremony with, with jokes from his set which were very funny he was very he was a fantastic host mm -hmm. so we should really go through a few of the winners really and, and, and discuss a few a few of them so obviously the best short film um, went to A Morning Stroll Studio it's kind AKs. of a no brainer really well yeah it's, I mean it was it was up against I mean I, I, I say that I'm very happy to say that it's it's been doing amazingly. I I saw it at Stuttgart about a year ago before it had really like officially premiered, and you're like, this is going to do very well. Yeah, you know they're passionate about filmmaking, and they they pretty much made it in their spare time. You know they they didn't rest on the laurels of the processes they have in the studio. You know they've got the software, they've got the talent, they have the ability. Um, Grant had this great idea, you know, and 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 really did a good job with it. We've we've been quite lucky to interview a few. Of these people, these winners earlier on, yeah. um, we've we've we should be talent scouts, really. <laughs> it's very nice to see people sort of subsequently do well when you've you know you've reached out to them in the past. Uh, so yeah, um, Morning Stroll, fantastic film, um, very sort of well, Studio AK. They've got a, they've got a wonderful way of mixing style uh, with with fantastic animation, mm -hmm. and this is just basically a perfect example of that. And to do it in the downtime as well uh, makes it all the more special. So uh, with the. Uh the nominees on that one. The nominees: um, All-Consuming Love, oh, uh, yeah. Man in a Cat by Lewis Hudson, Dice Productions. Have you seen Man in a Cat? I'll, yeah, it's I've funny, seen man. it. Very funny, very funny. It's a sort of film that, that Channel Four would have made a few years back. It's very sort of British. It's got Kevin Eldon. Yeah, yeah. 
Kevin El- you put Kevin Eldon in any animation and it's going to be funny. <laughs> he's a very funny man. Uh, so obviously, best short film, the winners, uh, A Morning Stroll by Grant Orchard Studio, aka the nominees were All Consuming Love by um, Lewis Hudson Dice Productions and Spin by uh, Max Hattler. We won't go through all the winners, but we'll go through the uh, the winners that uh, that stood out really. Uh-huh. I mean, another another standout winner, uh, best student film, uh, The Eagle Man Stag, uh, by Mikey Please. It's another one. It's a bit like a morning stroll. Like you just sort of know it's it's destined to to you know clean up. Well, for the last yeah. for the last two years since it's been released, whenever it has gone up for an award, it has you know more or less won every single one of them. It's been a very strong year, uh, couple of years for the Royal College of Arts. Mm. Uh, you've got Thursday and I'm Fine Thanks, which have both been nominated in the same category. Obviously, Eagleman Stag's a great film, and all the RCA output is great. But I was very very happy to to see uh, Fran Cheska's film get the public choice as an NFTS film. Bertie Crisp. Because I think NFTS, their output in general, um, is probably more my cup of tea. I like my films to kind of, I don't know, not necessarily have that artsy angle, mm. although it's very good when it's it's pulled off right. But I like I like a story where, you know, animals are having horrible sex with each other and, you know, <laughs> uh, or doing, you know, far more innocuous things like, you know, building dams and, and whatnot. And, you know, yeah, I it, thought Francesca's film was fantastic, really dark, really not to sound uh, misogynistic, but it's nice to see, you know, a female animator really embrace that kind of dark subject matter and, and not be shy about it, have that confidence, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we, we've got some very strong uh, students. You've got other universities, but... Um when it comes to award time, these are the guys you need to look out for. I think also there's just there's there's more consideration that goes to the quality of the output, especially more in the case of the NFTs. It's a school about the, you know the the art of making films, so you know everything is structured in the way that you would do it within the industry. So you get these films that look like you know properly commissioned, funded films, and I think in a lot of respects sort of exceed in terms of quality. You know, just sort of general films that have been given government funding in the past, mm-hmm. just because. You know, these are films made by people who are really, really passionate. It's great to see them do well. Moving on, the best commissioned uh, animation went to Nokia Gulp, um, which is uh, Sumo Science and Ardman. Uh, this is the uh, the one that was, that was filmed the on big the beach. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the huge and one. And the other one was the little dot. Right? The dot, yeah, yeah, dot. That one too, didn't it? Uh, it did, yeah. Um, moving ahead, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, dot did win for the uh, best commercial. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So so two wins there. Uh, both uh, both Peter Lord, who we might have mentioned in this podcast earlier, and um, David Sproxton both getting up to collect those awards on behalf of um, on behalf of Admin. Oh. Yeah, uh, the best commissioned animation, obviously, uh, Gulp won, but the nominees, Meth Project, uh, another one involving uh, Grant Orchard and Studio AKA, mm-hmm. uh, and Pilsner, uh, Pilsner Legends, two fantastic films. The Pilsner Legends one, particularly, uh, fantastic use of stop motion and paper, and, right. and uh, it's quite a, quite a fantastic film to, to look out for. Uh, best preschool series, uh, the winner of that was uh, Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom, uh, Ashley Baker Davis, the, the the guys behind, um, well, tele- Peppa Pig, right? Peppa Pig, yeah. From a yeah. television point of view, but obviously um, you've got uh, the Jolly Roger and uh, uh-huh, Village uh-huh. and things like that. Uh, the nominees: Octonauts, uh, the Blobfish Brothers, uh, and Peppa Pig. So uh, edging the bets there, rather the team from Ashley Baker Davis. It's kind of a champagne problem when you're up against yourself in any category, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I think if four people got up on stage, I think two of them had to be sulking and the other two had to be elated. Uh, Octonauts is... Have you ever seen Octonauts? No. Very funny. 
I mean, for a for a kids kid show, but for a kids show, watchable. It's, it's got some very watchable moments for Excellent. adults. Yeah, I mean, if you if some you of them really hit it out of the park, you know. <laughs> yeah, like you can just it, it's completely you know kids can completely watch it and adults can really enjoy it too. It's a fine art, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, I think there's a real. I don't know. There's a risk. There's an impulse to want to kind of crowbar in something risque or edgy. Like I think I'd I'd really struggle with that. So when you find something that's genuinely just witty, but general audience, you know, again, yeah. that's why Admin do so well. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And if you can, if you can find the balance between um, speaking to children and not speaking down at children, yeah, then you've got uh, you're onto a winner. I also think when you watch films by um, Brown Bag, uh, like something like The Octonauts, you've got a real sense that the crew had fun making it mm. and that that really shines through if, if around mates can enjoy themselves watching it yeah um children's choice award went to the amazing world of gumball which is really cleaning up at festivals and award ceremonies their their shelf must be groaning with with awards right now it's mm-hmm. a uh, cartoon network production uh, nominees for that were bookaboo um which is a puppet show but the books that get read out uh, by celebrities are, are animated uh, and Peppa Pig again another nominee there for uh, Ashley Baker Davis uh, best children's series uh, moving on from children's choice to the best children's series obviously the adults agreed because the amazing world of Gumball won again um, and the nominees being Rasta Mouse uh, Missing Masterpiece and Ask Lara Oh No B.O. I read in the Guardian it was a, it was a passing remark about Rasta Mouse being controversial it was in quotation did something happen with that or? everyone can find controversy in anything if you look hard enough and, mm-hmm. and I think the idea that, that Rasta Mouse uh, some people turned around and said that it was cheese was ganj basically oh okay and that was the I don't really think is either true or it's, it's sort of I haven't seen the context of, of the episode but that seems sort of tenuous I do think that animators spend more time concentrating on creating fantastic animation and trying to get a series commissioned mm. than trying to sneak in little references to drugs and things. I think yeah. that the the newspapers that uh, concern themselves with things like that should really concern themselves with other other matters. Mm. The BAAs are the one where the the uh, the award is like sculpted or it's different every. Yeah, the BAAs. Um, what's unique about the awards is that the awards are made by other animators, uh, and so you can win a Joanna Quinn drawing. You can win oh, nice. a, um, a a creation by by Mole Hill. You can you, you, yeah. and that, I think this makes it even more special. It's celebrating. So each one was was different per category. Yeah, yeah. Right, you right. could get a model. You it could, wasn't just like someone had designed it this year and that's what. No, no. Right. Every single every single that's award cool. was different. It's a nice idea. Yeah, I mean, it's celebrating British animation by celebrating British animation. It's it's you know, it's fantastic. For our next feature, we really want you guys to get in touch. Only the squiggly audience can decide this once and for all. Since 1999, a battle has raged within the animation community, and we want you guys to settle the dispute. We want you to settle it through Twitter, at Squiggly. We want you to settle it by emailing us, podcast at squiggly.co.uk. Which is best, The Simpsons or Family Guy? That was very dramatic. Yeah, yeah. I have goosebumps. I can put some. I can put some drama in things when I need to. Yeah. So it's it's the squiggly audience and readership that will determine this once and for once all. Once and for all. We think that highly of you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only you can decide. <laughs> it's a little on the nose, but I think as the first of a recurring feature, it would be a good way to sort of open up discussion. Sure. We want to hear your voice on this. We need to get the emails. We need to get the tweets flowing. 
I think we need to put the world to rights on this one. Frankly. Absolutely. I think we owe it. Yeah. Them. What's the point in having a podcast if we can't right a few wrongs? <laughs> of course, if you have any other feedback in general, thoughts on this podcast, what we discussed today, thoughts on, on maybe how we could improve it, please get in touch. Uh, podcast at squiggly.co.uk. Oh, thank you very much for joining us uh, from this, the first ever Squiggly podcast. I've been Steve Henderson. You can catch me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. I've been Ben Mitchell. I'm Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Online BenMitchellBlog.blogspot.com. The music for this podcast was created by Wesley Allard. You can catch him at WesleyAllard.com. And of course, don't forget to keep reading squiggly.co.uk. We'd like to thank everyone who helped out with this first podcast, hopefully the first of many, or at least several. Amy Wood at Admin, and of course Peter Lord himself, the director of the new movie Pirates, an adventure with scientists in cinemas nationwide. And I guess in the States in about a month. Also, we'd like to thank uh, Miles Bullough from Admin for his thoughts on the uh, tax breaks. We'd also like to thank uh, Fraser McLean for his insights uh, from his new book, Setting the Scene. And thanks to you guys for listening to the podcast. Uh, we really want to hear from you guys. Please get in touch. We'll see you next time. You know what bugs me about Peppa Pig? In the cartoon, both the eyes are on one side of the pig's snout. But if you ever see like a doll, the eyes are on... One's on the left and one's on the right. It really irritates me. Does it? We're going to edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs>